This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. We have resumed all on the same continent. Again, Can is over. We will have lots to talk about. Richard and Rebecca have done excellent writing about all of it. Uh, later in this episode, we're going to kick off our month of Pride flashbacks with 1932's Shanghai Express, starring Marlena Dietrich. Uh, but before we get to any of that, we kind of wanted to double back to last week's episode because we got so much great listener feedback about uh, degendering acting awards. We kind of talked about some ideas last week and more just about the urgency of the push to make room for non-binary performers in these awards. Um, but a lot of you wrote in with really great ideas. I think other people have talked about it um, in other media outlets as well. Um, David, having done the reporting on this, uh, did any of our wonderful listeners write in with something that felt like the magic bullet that's going to solve this? Ah, uh, magic bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to say. Uh, I did. It, we've talked a little bit about um, what we've seen come in and the surprising, I don't want to say consensus, but most frequent suggestion was this idea of adapted and original performance, which essentially separates fictional characters, performances of fictional characters and performances of, of real life figures, which on one hand, I definitely get, especially since... You know, there's something exciting about the fact that because the Oscars can get so clogged up with biopic performances, having a space for more original creations, which are usually a part of more original movies, giving them the space to really shine is is exciting and would be something very different for the Oscars. Um, but we can get into why that might be a little complicated in its own way. But yeah, there, there were a lot of different kinds of suggestions. And I think overall, it speaks to... Uh, that sentiment that, that you mentioned, Katie, that Liv Hughes said to me of reinvent it, because there really is so much you can do once you allow yourself to think about what is possible beyond what has been done before. The adapted thing is interesting. I, it, it maybe kind of do a little thought experiment about like, okay, so what, what, what are some recent years where that would have been a huge factor? So like in 2014, Michael Keaton was the only Best Actor nominee who wasn't playing a, per a real person. Wow. Uh, he was in Birdman, because otherwise you had Redmayne as Stephen Hawking, Steve Carell as John DuPont, Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper, an American Sniper, and Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, who, uh, you know, the inventor of computers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Today we call them that. So it's like, okay, so I guess Keaton just wins, and then there are four other nominees there. <laughs> or does uh, DiCaprio... Oh, no, I guess he was real. Jordan Belfort was real. So it would have to be Bruce Dern for Nebraska the previous year. Um, but the year before that, Jean Valjean, Hugh Jackman could have won. He wasn't real, as far as I know, nor was Bradley Cooper and Silver Linings. So that change would greatly affect the lead acting categories, which would be fascinating. And it's kind of a fun, maybe that's a better for this head Oscar buzz, but like it would affect basically <laughs> the last 25 plus years of, of Oscars in a significant way. It does feel like in the last few years, those sort of historical biopics haven't been um, as in trend or successful as they, you know, were a few, even a few years ago. But with this premise, does a character like the Fableman's, is a real person. Yeah. Or, this right. is where it gets so complicated. So it's not, it's not because adapted and original screenplay is based on what does it come from an, an original work, but this is like, is this a real person? Right. I, yeah. I think that's yes. where my brain is kind of stumbling over the difference when it comes to acting versus the adaptation screenplay. is from someone's real life. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. We didn't really celebrate enough how how low on biopics this past. Like, I'm looking at the best actor and best actress. So it was really Austin Butler and Ana de Armas as real people. And then, you know, you can get Lydia Tarr in there. Lydia Tarr would blow up this entire <laughs> distinction because no one <laughs> yeah. could agree on whether she's real or not. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's we had a lot more fictional people. So it would really fluctuate year to year. But would we get more biopics? If there's a whole category for biopic performances, basically, do, does that just flood the market even more? Oh God, I don't want to go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> In the actress category, as it stands, like that's it's much rarer of late for uh, someone to win for playing a real person. I mean, it certainly has happened with Chastain and Zellweger and Coleman. Technically, I mean, Queen Anne was a real person. Yeah. No one knows what she <laughs> yeah. sounded like, but um, but you have a lot more like Brie Larson, Emma Stone, Julianne Moore. I don't think Alice was real. I don't think Blue Jasmine was a real person. You know, so like that would uh, maybe they would start making more biopics about women, which would in general be good for that sort of parody, because we have a lot of great man movies and fewer, uh, you know, for for women. Yeah, I think um, one of the questions of this is if you're talking about an adapted performance, like if you look at, say, you know, The Great Gatsby, like is Nick Carraway, (laughs) say, falling into the category of an adapted performance or an original performance, because in a way it's, it's something that you are draw. There's more material to draw from there with that than there is even with something like the Fablemans, because that's, you know, an original screenplay. It is absolutely, you know, a memoir. Um, but those characters don't have any real, they don't exist in any pop culture or any text or material. Um, so that, that's where I get tripped up is how do you sort of differentiate it, where where is the line um, between the two categories? Because there's a lot of ways to define an actor drawing on you know past interpretations, making something their own versus creating something entirely new. Yeah, is yeah. Jackson Maine in A Star Is Born an original or an adapted performance? I don't know. Oh yeah, that's a good point. It does feel like this would create a, a lot of opportunity for category fraud, which I think none of us are very excited about. I mean, we've about. already got plenty yeah. of it, though. The next phase. No, no, he's based on a guy I knew. So it, it counts. It counts. Even, you know, I talked to Celine Song this week about past lives, which is very clearly based on her own life. But even she's like, this is an interpretation of my life. This isn't, I don't, there's just a lot of uh, room for, I don't know, conversation there about what is... I don't know. It seems yeah. really tricky. You do, you do find a lot of directors, especially, you know, in that sort of Roma category of uh, black and white childhood memoirs that we've seen a mm-hmm. lot of lately. There's There can be a reluctance to describe how much of it is real, which characters specifically are real, and, and it does get really fuzzy. Again, because these are directors working off of their own material, and they're giving actors characters to play, and, you know, We've all interviewed actors who've played these parts, and a lot of times they'll say, yeah, I didn't really talk that much about X's father. I just sort of went with what was on the page. And so that would imply that they're creating an original character, when in fact, um, it's someone who, you know, is based on someone who lived in real life and who is being shaped by um, a director in some way who knew him or her. So there's another idea that came from Kevin that I thought was really intriguing, kind of like the the, the most other specific idea, um, which is basically to curb off of the Emmys and have an outstanding guest appearance performance, but like best featured performance. Um, so saying this would be performances like Judy Dench and Shakespeare in Love and Judd, Versh, Judd Hirsch and the Fablemans. So adding that and then also a breakthrough performance category, um, which we've seen at the Indie Spirits and a few other smaller awards. Um, so, you know, Kevin writes, my genderless acting Oscar categories would be lead performance, supporting performance, feature featured performance, breakthrough performance. I think there's a fuzziness there as with the adapted versus original performances, but I'm kind of like this idea. Like, I don't know how many Judi Dench and Judd Hirsch level performances you get in a given year, and that category could be very odd for a while, but I I thought there was potential there. Yeah, the rubric would be screen time, and then you'd have to say, well, okay, but there have been lead performances. I'm guessing, you know, uh, Silence of the Lambs is a famous one where Mm -hmm. Hopkins is not actually in that much of the movie, but he won Best Actor. But, like, I think they should send up that test balloon this year so Patti Lapone can definitely win an Oscar for featured performance in <laughs> Bo is Afraid. Because she's, yeah, she is supporting, but, like, she's really in one scene um, where she has a monologue. But, 
um, I think it's a great idea because how many times have we have we all said on this podcast like, oh, I just saw this big movie, so and so is great, but they're I think their parts too small. I don't know if they have enough. You know, I'm thinking like Sheila uh, McCarthy in Women Talking. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, people like that who aren't going to get the supporting push because there's someone above, tech, you know, quote unquote, above them. Um, but if there was a third option, a third way, mm-hmm. um, that would be thrilling. One thing I didn't get into as much when we talked about this last week was my opinion of the Emmys is that they should just, you know, degender the categories and leave them as is because they have so many acting yeah. categories <laughs> yeah. and and so many tiers because they also have things like short form and they have you know, it just goes on and on and on. Um, the Oscars obviously don't have that luxury or that room, but this also does open up the possibility of maybe expanding the definition of what you can honor in a motion picture, um, what kind of performance. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that these are good examples of expanding the definition without sacrificing the fact that the Oscars do want to be you know, curated. They don't want to be nominating um, 100 actors every year. That's That's a big thing that came up in my reporting was they're not interested in, you know, expanding the number of nominees. And that's a big concern. So they have to find a way to keep the number of winners the same, if not more, while also keeping it, keeping that feeling of, you know, exclusivity and feeling special and feeling like the big one. And and that's a tough balance to strike, but these are the kinds of awards of categories that I think allow them to do that. So I want to throw out one more that came from Renee, who suggested dividing it by age, uh, noting that we talk about ageism in the industry uh, and it's time for Hollywood to learn that one age is not preferable to another. Renee throws out uh, the basically the age of roles, not the actual ages of the actors, maybe dividing 1 to 19, 20 to 29, 30 to 49, 50 to 59, 60 to 99. That leaves us with, I think, six or five categories. Um, and then she points out that if a role calls for an actor to age throughout the story, you pick uh, one fitting time period, which I think in many of these biopic stories, you get a, a wide span of it. I'm not opposed to this idea. I think it would be incredibly complicated, um, only because often you don't know how old half the people are in a movie. But I think it it does point out that there are a lot of different ways to rethink this, if nothing else. It's cool to see people think outside the box on this, because I feel like that's the one thing we're begging these leadership groups to do. And so it definitely proves that there are ideas. Yeah, I think telling writers you have to write the age of all your characters in your scripts, you know, when they come back from the strike and are writing again, seems like asking <laughs> asking a lot of them. And, <laughs> and and yeah, there's so much, There's it's so tricky with actors, you know, obvi- rightly so being sensitive about their age in general, but it's a complicated one. But I, hey, I, no idea is a bad idea at this point, right? Like we just yeah, want absolutely. ideas, I think, to sort of, push this uh, forward so I don't really want to know how old Joker from Joker is you know <laughs> he's, he's ageless as well yeah. known. Is, that is, that an adapted, a... is that an adapted performance Richard <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it would be kind of funny though to force because there's a lot of this in, in Hollywood where it's like that actor is like 55 and they have mm. a four-year-old kid like how's that working and they're like no no, no the character's 35 <laughs> it would sort of force a lot of honesty about that um, it, BAFTA does young performer right that's something they do uh, they do breakthrough. They do breakthrough. Uh, who is it? Was it Golden Globes used to do young I think performer? It's Critics Choice does young does a kid performer. And Golden Globes used to have like the star of the year, like that was this, right. the Pia Zadora Award that right. she like bought, basically. Yeah, I mean that sort of thing. Breakthrough, however you want to label it. Like, I think that that could also do something interesting in terms of affecting the balance of like the kind of age-old thing of like you know older male performers win best actor and younger female performers win best actress and maybe if there was a younger thing that 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 would sort of change that dynamic some um Mm -hmm. in a good way it's funny because between sheila mccarthy judd hirsch judy dench uh, etc you could say that that featured performance category would look a lot like an older actor category yeah it is where they tend to Shine because, you know, because there is ageism in Hollywood and those actors of a certain age who are not Meryl Streep uh, do not tend to have the meatiest roles in films, especially it's where they get a chance to shine. And so it is the kind that is the kind of category that especially coupled with the breakthrough performance, you could achieve that sort of spread without having specific age ranges for them. 
I would really love to some for someone to go back through last year's Oscars and figure out like who fits into all of these categories in these given movies. Like, you know, may, like Harry Shum Jr. probably gets a featured performer for Everything Everywhere given that movie suite. Like, there's there's interesting potential there. Um, although then you're combining the the leading supporting categories, so maybe you have fewer people. Um, someone do the math for us and write us back. Get your stopwatches out. Yeah, <laughs> Joe Reed, do the math for us. Yeah, exactly. what I'm yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Uh, I really do want to keep hearing from people. I don't know if we'll revisit this topic on future episodes, but if you have ideas for this, um, we will send them to the Academy as best we can. Um, email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So Richard and Rebecca, you are back from Cannes. Um, I don't know if you've recovered, if you're still eating baguettes on a daily basis, how that process works. Um, but you pulled it together and wrote about the awards that happened on Saturday at the festival and, um, you know, wrote very to the point, like, did we see a future Oscar contender premiere at this year's Cannes? And I think as usual, the answer is maybe, but it does seem like there was a lot of good stuff there regardless. Yeah, we talked, I guess, on Tuesday, right? So I had a couple more days there. Um, for me, one of the bigger... Well, obviously, Rebecca and I did not see the Palme d'Or winner. <laughs> I feel like we're, I cursed... We're the biggest losers yeah. here. <laughs> Neither of us saw that I feel like again. I gave my bad luck with that to Rebecca by accident. Yeah, um, thanks a lot, Richard. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, excited to see that one. It sounds great. But the I think the big kind of later breakout um, in the second week of the festival was this movie, The Pot au Feu, uh, which is this really, like, decadently filmed food romance period piece with Juliette Binoche. Um, I feel like I've seen one of those and it was called Chocolat. Well, (laughs) exactly. Uh, I I hesitate to say, or no, I'm I'm, I'm fine saying it's better than Chocolat. Um, It's it's a lot more subdued than I think the initial reactions were. I saw it the next day and I really liked it, but um, it's a kind of more muted movie. Um, Tran Anhung, who uh, is the director, he won uh, Best Director. Uh, which is big um, for that movie. And for him, he's been a can, you know, person for many decades. And so it's exciting to have him come to come back with this big movie. And I don't know, Stephanie Zakarik, the time critic tweeted something about the movie that like really convinced me I had to see it the next day, which is um, there's a great art house theater in, in the Boston area called the Coolidge Corner Theater. And she's like, this is the kind of movie that would have played at the Coolidge Corner Theater, uh, in 1985 for six months <laughs> like it has that kind of older audience art house but like really accessible um heartwarming sad uh sort of pull to it and i don't know i think that could uh to use a food joke i guess work a treat on the academy um i i don't believe it has u.s distribution yet um which that will obviously really affect it i mean neon is obviously the now they've this is the fourth palm door winner they've bought before uh, the palm has been announced. I saw they tweeted a picture of Michael Jordan like holding up four fingers for his championships. <laughs> like they're really I mean, feeling high on that. Pretty significant for them. Obviously, Paris, like their first big acquisition, it can made a lot of money for them. But I mean, you know, for an international art house, but like um, Tatan did not do so well. And uh, Triangle of Sadness, I think, did okay given the circumstances. But um, yeah, so I, I think that. Anatomy of a Fall, the film that Neon bought, the Palme d'Or winner, um, seems to have a lot of commercial appeal. Uh, It's a legal thriller. Um, So I don't know. I think those two that weren't already really on our radar ahead of Cannes feel like the the biggest breakouts. I don't know. What am I missing, Rebecca? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think a lot of people were surprised that Zone of Interest um, got the second place prize, the Grand Prix. And I think a lot of people had assumed it was going to win the Palme. But as we've been saying, you can't 
the juries are unpredictable every year. They're different every year. We don't we don't know what they're going to do. But I think someone even asked in the press conference after um, they asked Ruben Ostlin, who is the president, they basically told him they were surprised because everyone was talking about zone of interest. And he was like, well, we don't listen to critics <laughs> is, is, is the way to answer that question. But um, so that, I thought that was a little surprising. I do think, you know, we're going to see an awards push for that. And then I, I it's, it's of note that um, Monster won the Coriana won, won screenplay. I, I think, you know, we'll probably see that make a run for at least international feature um, as we get closer to that time of year. But um I think, yeah, I think that sort of covers the main things. I think it's really smart that Killers of the Flower Moon was not in competition, so we don't have to be talking about why it didn't win anything, you know, <laughs> because that's an obvious uh, Oscar contender at this point. How did May-December fare? I honestly forgot to look at whether it won anything. It didn't awards. win anything. Is that surprising? Um, no. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of that film, but I, and with this jury, I'm not that surprised. Um, they really spread the wealth among um, a lot of the international features, so... Uh, I don't know, Richard, if you were surprised, but I didn't. I thought maybe actress, but... Um... Yeah, actress went to the star of the Nuri Bildas Ceylon movie uh, about dry grasses. So that was a nice kind of surprise, kind of out of left field, because there were so many big stars in movies, you know? And, and, and Sandra Hewler is not a huge star in the U.S., obviously, but she's, you know, a big German actress. She was in a huge Cannes movie a few years ago. And Tony Erdmann, she had two big movies this year. So people were kind of saying, well, obviously she has to win. But I, I don't know. I bet Ruben Oslin does pay a little bit of attention to that scuttlebutt quietly on his lurking Twitter account or something. And, <laughs> and was like, uh-uh. Ah, ah, ah. Um, I, I did not, unfortunately, see about Dry Grasses. It's kind of hard to sign up for a, a Ceylon movie at Cannes because they're long and they're very slow and you're often very tired. So I will see it when I have a bit more energy. So that's, you know, but that's a cool win. But it did, you know, that was probably May-December's best shot um, for Natalie Portman. But I don't think that really means anything for the movie's chances. I think, you know, with a Netflix campaign behind it, if they, I don't know where they're going to slot it, it probably, you know, somewhere under Maestro, but maybe there's movies in between those two um, in terms of their campaign budget. But um, yeah, I think it's okay that it didn't win. I'm sure that it's disappointing uh, for Todd Haynes and others, but, um, you know, only a few things can win at, at this festival. Yeah. So A24 has none of interest and Neon has Anatomy of a Fall. Are they just now the two distributors who are most invested in these kinds of movies? I mean, um, Focus had Asteroid City there. There's obviously other studios involved. But it is interesting that Neon is just like staking itself on like we are the can people. And then A24 will come up once in a while with a big one, too. Um, they're, they're really cornering the market there for American distribution. And they've kind of proven themselves. I mean... With Triangle of Sadness, that was a pretty polarizing movie, and they got it into picture, director, and screenplay. Yeah. Um, I I would watch out for how far they can take this movie. Um, and me and my friends in the Sandra Hewler fan club are eagerly watching <laughs> to see uh, what happens with that particular campaign. Um, although I guess that's a neon A24 fight. I guess I don't know how that I don't know how that's going to work, um, but yeah, I, I, they they just have proven art house successes in a time when those are vanishingly rare, <laughs> and um, especially with can movies, which are always pushing the boundaries and are always a tougher commercial sell. If you can get a movie that premieres there to have some kind of award success, you know, anyone who saw Titan, like it's just it was not going to happen on that scale. <laughs> I don't think France even. It didn't even make France's, it wasn't even France's submission in the end. But for the most part, you know, the movies that have a chance to succeed here, those are the studios I think that you'd want behind them. If not, I guess, a Netflix who just has a massive built-in streaming audience, but that's a completely different dynamic. I don't think we're that far off from Neon becoming sort of synonymous with a certain kind of cool, the way that A24 is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The big difference is- Or if not there already. Yeah. Neon doesn't produce a lot of its own movies, you know? They have. Like, I think Spencer was theirs from the get-go, right? And there are other things. But, yeah, I don't know. I I think it's interesting. I just think think Neon really needs to get the sort of financial traction. Um, It's one thing for us who pay close attention to this stuff to be like, oh, look at them. Like, they're having this great hot streak. But... I, you know, I think something they need in everything everywhere, you know, um, to kind of really mm-hmm. put themselves on the map. I mean, I'm, I love what they're doing. And I think it's really exciting that there is this new company championing all this stuff and, and taking those risks. Um, I just hope for them and for us that um, something really connects with them in the next year or so. 
Well, those of us who go to Toronto know that the first day of the festival press screenings is usually when the can hits um, all screens. So I will look forward to finally seeing these then. Um, I think we'll all be interested in where a lot of these films land in the fall um, film festival circuit. But um, we'll be talking about them plenty, I think. Yeah, there's lots to talk about. It was in looking back now, stateside, it was a pretty good year and a very interesting year um, with one, you know, ridiculous TV show at the center. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this weekend was the Cannes Awards and also um, some pretty noteworthy television finales. We're in TV finale season. um, As we're talking, the Ted Lasso maybe series finale is still coming. But on Sunday night were the Succession and Barry finales. And um, not to share my champagne problems, but I was spending time with my family until I sat down on my laptop to watch the Succession finale because it was in the middle of Memorial Day weekend. Um, David, I think you are... uh, annoyed by this also. But I think there's there's a reason other than our own convenience to be kind of baffled by how the new Emmy schedule is making it. So Memorial Day weekend is just TV finale bonanza. Yeah, I'm sure HBO is not thrilled about the fact that Barry and Succession ended their runs on the same night. Somebody somewhere ended its season, hopefully not its run, also on that night. They had White House Plumbers end the next day, and they have Love and Death ending the day this podcast is up. I mean, that's just an unreal amount of finales to pack into one week. And it's because the Emmys had a rule adjustment that we've talked a little bit about on this podcast, where if you want your finale to be eligible for for the Emmys, then it needs to air before May 31st. If you're a limited series, the whole show needs to air before May 31st. So because this came up within the past year and these networks are, you know, especially, you know, a more selective network like HBO is scheduling things, you know, years in advance, they basically had to act quickly and make sure everything was packed in before that date. And so for their spring slate, there was no room to push things weeks ahead or weeks behind because that's what they had. The problem this is solving is the hanging episodes, right? That like there can be single episodes of a show that are eligible a year at like, I think Stranger Things is doing one of these this year. Like there's There is a problem there, but maybe not as big a problem as it's creating. Yeah, I would think that now that this is the established way of doing things, networks will be able to better schedule against it. But you still have the same problem of there's no firm date. There didn't used to be any firm date on which an eligible season or episode had to air. Mm -hmm. It used to be if you had the bulk of the episodes premiere before May 31st, you'd be fine. So the finales would sort of roll into June and maybe even July. But that now means you have to finish by May 31st. And so a lot of these shows, as we've seen with all these April, May premieres over the last few years, are going to end the last week of May, Mm -hmm. which just happens to be a holiday weekend, Mm -hmm. which is a disaster, both for us who cover this and for people watching, because you're not going to be able to experience... The, you know, most people are not going to be able to experience the glory of a succession and very serious finale on the same Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. It's just probably not going to happen, especially, you know, if you want to watch live and you're on the West Coast and it's in the middle of the day. It just doesn't really work. So I think it's going to require some some fine tuning. And I just think it's a real shame, particularly for Barry. You know, it had such an audacious ending and it really just didn't feel like it got that moment. That succession, of course, rightly, inevitably got, because how could it compete with that, especially on the same network? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know Twitter isn't what it used to be, um, but in terms of like a succession finale, like you want to go on Twitter and watch everybody yelling about it in real time, and you're just not going to get the same volume of that. I mean, I don't know, Richard and Mm -hmm. Becca, if you guys were watching along live, if you like tried to engage in it or if it was impossible, given the way the Sunday was placed. Yeah, I mean, I I watched Succession the night of, and I did not watch Barry the night of. So I engaged with the social media conversation around Succession. I just, you know, I I think networks really believe that voters have short memories, and that's why they Mm -hmm. want it to be as close to the deadline as possible so that nobody forgets a show. But I I agree with David. It, It hurts Barry that... It was so overshadowed, even if they're trying to, you know, get it in at the last possible moment. I I definitely think there's going to be some strategy reassessment in the next couple of years. But again, Succession is such a unique phenomenon this year that 
you know, this won't always happen, but it did, it did definitely feel like an overwhelming Sunday. And like somebody somewhere, I love that show. And, and I saw like two tweets about it. On, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm like, oh, that's a show that I, you know, it's sort of more of a hidden gem that I wish more people would discover. But yeah, there's, it just, sometimes it feels like there should be enough room for everything, but on a Sunday like that, it does not. <laughs> Too bad that, you know, it, is there some kind of coming like lack of content created by some sort of labor action that they maybe <laughs> maybe could have saved some of these things so there's not this crazy traffic jam um yeah the problems could be very different a year from now you're right <laughs> yeah you know it's like it's like gee if we had just held one of those fucking shows you'd have something great to play when nothing else is being made but um yeah it's tough i mean it's it was tough for yellow jackets even that they were competing time slot wise with yeah. succession and then ended up going to Fridays. And, you know, um, that season, I believe also recently ended. Right. And, uh, yeah. the fact that you weekend. don't know, uh, suggests that there was no, a it was, it was the same weekend, same, same weekend. Yeah. It had I, to be, I read a spoiler and I was like, well, I'm done with that show because <laughs> I don't like what they chose to do. But, um, yeah, I, I think I had to prioritize succession because obviously uh, I do another podcast for work called still watching work. Um, we had to record something that night, but it just also felt like Barry is critically acclaimed as it is. Just it, there's just not that conversational moment, momentum. You know, it's all an echo chamber because only a couple million people are watching any of these shows really in real time. But, Generously, <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, you know, I went back to Barry uh, on Monday night and um, had to do a little refresher because I'd watched the seven episodes previous to review. You know, felt like two months ago. But it had its own impact, and you're right. You're all like, the, I, I, if it had been able to sit on its own on Sunday night, not you know, dealing with another series finale, I think uh, it would have re- resonated more. But I think I, my hunch would be that Emmy voters will give it its due and catch up with it when they need to. You know, the the Yellow Jackets example was interesting because you know we have had all of these shows airing at the same time, and it has felt like Succession has completely dominated the conversation this spring. But with Yellow Jackets. What happened this past weekend, from my observation, was the same thing that started happening with Ted Lasso a few weeks ago, which is no one was really talking about it, you know, within the certain sphere, uh, at least, <laughs> that we operate in until everyone was like, what happened to this show? Mm-hmm. And those pieces started trickling out a lot around that Yellow Jackets finale. Um, I also had a lot of issues with it, um, so I um, understand why those uh, were timed to that. But it, it's also a question of, like, when there is so much happening at the same time, how do you allocate your coverage? How do you decide when something is worth talking about? And those were two shows. I haven't seen the Ted Lasso finale. Um, I don't think any of us have, and it's air- it will have aired by the time this is up. Yeah. But, you know, in both of those cases, the story kind of became what's going on here, um, especially as other shows like Succession and, and Barry are, were really creatively successful. Um, this past season. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a weird volume of, of conversation and coverage around shows that are not succession because there has been, I think, a sort of concerted effort uh, among people like us, at least to figure out when people are listening and when they're like, what they're exactly tapping into. Yeah. And if you've got shows that are only watched by a couple million people, but uh, we are among them and we are like talking directly to them. Like if it's worth it for you to make those shows, it's worth it for you to figure out how to divert, how to direct the attention around yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we haven't figured that out yet. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. So we're now going to kick off our 2023 Pride flashback series. We're bringing it back from last year. Uh, Every Thursday in June, we'll be talking about a different film from Oscar history with some connection to Pride Month. Um, And the further back we go in history, we're uh, starting back in 1932, um, the more tangential these connections get for the many uh, reasons of history. Um, But when you go back to 1932, you get Marlena Dietrich, who is a really interesting figure in LGBTQ history. And I don't think we 
can be exhaustive in this conversation. Um, We're going to talk about Shanghai Express, uh, which is not the film that she dresses in a tuxedo and kisses a woman in. And it's not the film that got her her Oscar nomination. That is Morocco, uh, which was her first Hollywood film. It came out in 1930. It's just hard to watch. It's part of a Criterion box set that I don't own and didn't have $90 to spend. Um, But Shanghai Express is on the Criterion channel, or at least it will be until the end of May. Hopefully it's not already gone by the time you hear this. It is more watchable at the very least. Um, It earned three Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director for Joseph von Sternberg, and Best Cinematography. I would love to know why she didn't get a Best Actress nomination for this. You know, uh, that this had Oscar buzz version of that history that is a little inaccessible to me um, because it's such a huge star vehicle, uh, just as I imagine Morocco is. Uh, She plays Shanghai Lily, which is, I think, even if you don't know a lot about Marlena Dietrich, that's kind of a character name that sticks with you. Um, She's a mysterious woman on a train going through China. Um, The film is... It's kind of this classic format um, of, you know, a bunch of strangers on a train and it gets uh, hijacked by um, the, by the military um, rebels. And it's such a good format. It's been remade at least twice. And you can easily imagine a remake of it today. Um, but I think as a way to get to know Marlena Dietrich and uh, Anna Mae Wong, who we talked about uh, in connection to Flower Drum Song, who we talked about around Babylon. Um, she's in a really key supporting role in this. Um, it's a revelation in a lot of ways. It's not as queer a film as I think Morocco is. Um, it's kind of a, an expressly hetero thing about her trying to get back with the uh, British doctor who she was in love with. Um, but her power and her kind of allure and as a woman in the 1930s, um, and, you know, this is right around the time of the Hayes Code. So, you know, expectations around sex on film were changing a lot at this time. Um, but the way she expresses power and sexual agency in this movie is, I think, still pretty revelatory. Um, I had never seen it before. Is, is anyone else as kind of um, new to all of this as I was? I'd, I'd seen clips. But first of all, what a pick. I, <laughs> <laughs> this was a delight. And... There's just one shot that that to me screams queer and screams absolutely should be a part of this uh, this series. It is when the uh, boarding housekeeper, Mrs. Haggerty, sort of walks in on uh, <laughs> Shanghai Lily, and then Anna Mae Wong uh, is also in this film, and she and and Marlene Dietrich have this kind of steamy, intense chemistry. She just walks in on their cart. And there's just this long silence, and they look at her, and she's she's taken aback, and it is it's kind of explosive, and it's completely quiet, and it, it the the scene progresses with her sort of discussing you know what she wants to do when they get off the train, and then she realizes they are not, I forget what the exact phrase she uses is, but they're not um respectable people. I wrote it respectable down. respectable people. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> I had it written down somewhere too, but it's just to me it's just it absolutely is in you know in conversation with who Marlene Dietrich was and uh what the chemistry between these women is. Um but there's obviously a whole bunch of that that we can get into, but it was just one one scene that made me smile. There's one right before that too that I wrote down where a different man, I can't remember which, you know, you, it's one of those ensemble movies where you can't figure out who all the characters are until halfway through and one of the other men, he tries to walk into their compartment and they they look at him, they say nothing. They have said nothing to each other the whole time and he just <laughs> walks away. <laughs> he like knows that he is not welcome yes, there. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, it felt very uh, in tune with that scene. Stay out. Yeah. I mean, Rebecca, you wrote kind of the tribute to Anime Wong to uh, in our awards issue last year, uh, kind of on the occasion of Babylon and she was going to be on a stamp. Um, were you familiar with this performance before watching this movie? She was on a coin. Okay, excuse me. She should be on <laughs> a stamp does, as well, which is not It does feel yet. like she's everywhere in yeah. the last uh, eight months or something, which I think is so cool. I had not seen the full movie. I think I had also seen clips like David, so it was... Um, I really enjoyed watching. I think it's just so beautiful. The cinematography yeah. is really, really incredible, and it's just so rich with these lavish sets. And, and, and like, Marlene Dietrich, oh my goodness, like, I often feel like I'm saying the phrase you can't take your eyes off her about movies we see now, but like mm-hmm. this is the 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 original example of that. I feel like you, she's just so confident and stunning, and it, it it definitely sent me down the rabbit hole of sort of reading more about her, um, you know, off screen life because I I sort of knew enough, I thought, but it's just like such an interesting um, story and the way she lived at that time when I didn't think it would be possible to sort of um, be at least quasi-openly queer in 
in her own personal life. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad you chose this one, Katie. I, th- I was surprised. I thought we were going with Morocco, but I- I'm glad you chose this one. I wanted it to be Morocco, and then I just realized how daunting it you would be to it, watch. Yeah. And like, I want people to be able to watch this along with us, too. You know, hopefully um, some listeners are watching these movies as well. Um, and this one, you know, I feel like as an introduction is still pretty good. Yeah, and both are pre-code films, which is, I think, important for the way you watch them and, and the, the tone of them and the overall characterizations. I'm always so struck by that. Um, on I don't watch a ton of pre-code films, to be honest, but, um, you know, I think It Happened One Night is just barely pre-code. And, like, the, the sexual mm-hmm. innuendo, or not even innuendo, um, that you kind of think of old movies as being very, not chaste, but sort of very coy about that stuff. Yeah. But like in this, it's like, oh, no, she's a prostitute like or like a courtesan, a sex worker, whatever, you know, and like they're they're not shy about that in a way that they would have to be just a few years later for many years, you mm-hmm. know, um, until the real revolutions of the you know later mid-century. And I find something fascinating about that and also a little eerie because I think we like to distance ourselves from a lot of the problems of the past, be like we've evolved. And it's like, no, but back then people were screwing and doing stuff. You know, like it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't yeah. so different. It just seems that way in a lot of media because they had to be really careful about what they talked about and what they showed. So I liked that. And I, I think also speaking to that films, I don't want to call it modernity, but but sort of it's it's difference. Uh, it's it, it, it. The reason, one of the reasons, it stands out in its time. Um, a, a listener, Verba, emailed us about the Chinese languages spoken yeah. in the film, and um, so in the region that they are in, you know, um, if they're going to Beijing to Shanghai, probably Mandarin would have been more accurate. But because a lot of immigrants from China to the U.S. at the time were Cantonese and Taishanese speakers, that's mostly what's spoken. Anime Wong is speaking Taishanese because that's where her family's from. Um, but the the the, the Verba, our, our listener, she said that she was pleasantly surprised to hear actual Chinese languages spoken in the film um, because she was expecting them to speak in English like a lot of Hollywood films that take place in China, like something as recent as The Last Emperor, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is pretty interesting. That And also the way that the film talks about the xenophobia and racism of its white protagonist, you know, mm-hmm. um, they are not shown to be totally upstanding, but also, you know, like it had, the movie has a really interesting relationship, problematic, sure, in some, in, in certain instances, but like with that sort of dialogue around race, um, you know, uh, and I, I don't know, it just feels strikingly modern um, in a way that uh, just a few years later, films were not <laughs> really allowed to be, I guess. I was reading an article online from thatsmags.com uh, just about uh, Anime Wong's role in this and how a lot of uh, Chinese media was kind of um, objected to her roles in Hollywood because, as I think we've discussed, she wasn't really given a lot of opportunities for standout roles like in this one. But that uh, during the 30s, there was more American sympathy for China because they were um, struggling with Japan, as Japan we fought in World War II, obviously. So it's interesting. It was watching this movie. I was just like, OK, where were we on China? Where was like America's idea about like what China, where China was in the global stage? Because it's changed so much over time. So I feel like I need a whole book now to understand America's attitudes toward China, you know, even though it wasn't giving Chinese actors the opportunities that they should. There was a, an interesting attitude toward the country as a whole. I wish I hadn't been like so completely distracted by um, the actor who plays the quote unquote bad guy (laughs) because he's uh, his name is Varner Oland and he's Swedish, but he's apparently made a whole career out of playing Chinese characters. And wow, every time he's on screen, I was just like, nope, 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 (laughs) Uh, you know, because you see Anna Mae Wong and she's like so authentic and beautiful. And then you're like, why is this? Swedish man playing this role, but I know, I know, 1932, what can we say? But. And to have the him, the villain, say, I'm not proud of my white blood, you know, yeah. and they're like, you, you, you wish you were just Chinese? You know, it's like, <laughs> why did the villain have to fucking say I know, that? Right. Like, well, when he right. said that, when I didn't know yeah. he was going to be the bad guy, I was like, God, oh, that's fascinating. And then, yeah. you know. And then, no. <laughs> it goes in that way. Very strange. So the relationship between Marlene Dietrich and Anne Mae Wong is much speculated about in really interesting ways. There's just not a lot of documentation, like people's personal sex lives were not documented for obvious reasons. Um, but there's a novel called Delayed Rays of a Star that came out a couple years ago. I read it a couple years ago. Um, it was kind of 
not my introduction to both of them, but like I did not realize their connections here. Um, it kind of imagines them in a in a kind of brief affair at this time um, and then kind of watches how, how their lives spin out from here. It is fiction, but I think it's a really interesting way to kind of imagine more about their lives. Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl is also a character. If you Google Marlena Dietrich <laughs> and Anime Wong, there is a real picture taken at a party in Berlin in 1928 of Marlena Dietrich, Anime Wong, and Lenny Riefenstahl, who at the time I think was only an actress. I don't think she'd started making movies yet. Um, but that is a fascinating trio, and the book kind of follows the three of them over the course of the 20th century. And I, I recommend that in addition to all the Googling we've been doing. I'm just imagining oh, wow. the clipboard or iPad person out front and people checking in. Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, R, it starts with an R. Like, it's just, just weird to imagine just like showbiz parties in Berlin in 1928. It's very... And that's, I think, if you learn about Marlena Dietrich and how she got away with, like, being who she was and this personality, like, you think of Cabaret, you think of, like, Weimar Berlin, Uh like, that she was so um, distinguished in that period, um, which is just not at all how we think of that that period of time and, obviously, you know, everything that happened next. It's also interesting, I was just reading up on Dietrich before this, like, that she, you know, uh, some German people in America during World War II had a lot of trouble, you know, they were not not to the same extent as the Japanese were certainly, but like were ostracized or whatever, suspected of collusion, you know, with with the Nazis. Um, and she really was vocal and in, in, in trying to you know help uh, refugees from Germany and France at the start of the war. And like, you know, she received I think like some sort of medal from the U.S. government for her work during that time. Like, um, and was sort of censured by the German government for a long time because she didn't side with Germany during that that that, that war and. Um, I guess she had a street named after her finally in 1996 in Berlin, uh, where her birthplace was, like her her childhood home or something. But like just a couple of years previous to that, they struck it down because they said, no, 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 we, we she didn't, she she was on the other side. You know, I don't know. It just like, I, I didn't realize that she had had this kind of big political career um, in some ways, in addition to obviously her, her performance. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great episode of You Must Remember This uh, with Karina Longworth, past guest on the show, talking about her work during World War II specifically. And like she she like did USO tours like Bob Hope, like she was very staunchly like pro-American mm. military. Um, that's, a, that's a great way to get it. And it talks about her relationship with Joseph von Sternberg uh, a little bit as kind of a prologue, which maybe we can talk about since he directed this movie. And I think seven of her uh, films, yeah. including The Blue Angel. Um, that's a fascinating relationship, too. And uh, Rebecca mentioned the cinematography, which um, is really stunning here. It it did win. That's the only Oscar it won. And uh, Lee Garms, who was the DP, um, and he'd worked with Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock. This is the only movie he'd won for, but but he was nominated like 30 years later. um, And he also had done uh, Morocco. So he Ah. had also worked with her before. And one of the rabbit holes I fell down was apparently James Wong Howe did some of the background footage um without credit for this film and he hmm. go, oh, wow. he goes on to become obviously one of the greatest cinematographers um that we know of but i think that was such a random uh aside on the cinematography can we talk about marlena's first look in the feathers oh my oh, god yeah. i mean the look. I can talk about any look <laughs> yeah, where do you want to go <laughs> i mean that look when she gets out of this she gets out of the car right or something she sh- when she first shows up and she's yeah. got these feathers kind of curling around her face it's like and the little the little fascinator hat it's just like it's it's such a striking entrance and and it's you know even in black and white you can tell like the sort of the vibe it's giving you know it's this dark kind of not menacing but sort of sultry uh presence and it's really you know you get why at the time she was like pretty much the biggest star in the world you know yeah. um bec- and and was really bankable and um you know the wikipedia page for this movie has some funny um old ads that were uh, targeted at theater owners being like, uh, it'll bring thrills, blah, 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 box office, <laughs> you know, because she was such a big <laughs> deal at the time. And that entrance, you're like, oh, yeah, there it is. Like, totally get it. <laughs> like, she she wears that costume well. And then the character, which, you know, speaking to her not getting an a- acting nomination for this, like, it's such a fascinating character in this story of men and conflict and whatever, that this woman emerges as the, the real, um, you know, the sort of shrewd center of it. But then you've also got uh, Anime Wong's character, who's the only one who can kill the bad guy. She like kind of steps up where yep. nobody else can. And I like I don't know if that's a racialized thing where she's like this other woman who can do the, the mm-hmm. dishonorable thing. But it's it's an interesting, powerful moment for her. And then she kind of ends the movie as like a press celebrity uh, in a really interesting way. I mean, as with I think so many roles for non-white actors at that time, you're like, where is like the whole other movie about this character where you can you only yeah. barely sense what's going on with her? Yeah, it's. 
it's the kind of performance that transcends the role that the movie has, mm-hmm. you know, boxed her into, uh, which I think just speaks more broadly to who Anna Mae Wong was as an actor and a star. Um, because, yeah, the, the, the movie is not, she's not, there are not a lot of Chinese actors in this movie. And so she does have to fill a role for what, you know, the air of the movie and for exactly what you're talking about. But because she's so compelling and at times like strange and unusual in, in the way she plays her, to me, it, it never felt like it just sort of fell into a cliche or into something sort of unwatchably problematic, say. It was always interesting mm-hmm. because she made it interesting. And that's what actors like her had to do in movies like this. Mm-hmm. And that, but you know, even after the the this big movie was a hit and you know uh, got Oscar nominations, like Wong still lost out on the Good Earth, right? Yeah, like yeah, uh, like just a couple years later. years later, you know. Even though it's such a star turn, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, Hollywood was not willing to turn her into that big of a star. And this is the great thing about watching movies from you know this is almost a hundred years old. Like it sends you down so many rabbit holes. You see so many like tendrils of history kind of expanding out from this point, um, or even beforehand with uh, von Sternberg and Dietrich meeting in Berlin. Um, you know, it's again why like that novel delayed Raise the Star. I was so captivated by because you can kind of take this one pivot point and imagine all of the different lives that spin out from there. Um, so maybe we all now write, a, write our own versions of that novel <laughs> inspired by Shanghai <laughs> Express or something. I'm going to write a really moving novel about the movie White Christmas. <laughs> I mean, I've watched it enough times. I feel like lots of kissing with Danny Kaye and some, I don't know, male dancer. <laughs> um, well, I love that we are kicking off our Pride Flashback series with this. Again, as you go back into the past, the connections get stranger. Um, but the pre-code period, you know, I feel like we need a pre-code uh, film expert to come on and talk to us about all the ways that there is subtext and text that, um, you know, those of us who came along after can't really imagine for ourselves. So I'm glad we got the chance to watch it. Good choice, Katie. (laughs) Thank you. Congratulations (laughs) to me. Um, And next week as a preview, uh, we're going to be jumping very far into the future, into the 80s with Kiss of the Spider Woman. Um, So join us for that one and we'll see all the ways Hollywood changed in those 50 years or maybe just talk about one movie. We'll, We'll see where the conversation goes. That does it for this week's episode. As we said, next week we'll be talking about Kiss of the Spider Woman. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the funniest thing to say when you're handed an Oscar goes to Rebecca Ford. Is this a real person? I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.